The book of Jude should be relatively easy to find. If you go to the back of the Bible, find the Revelation. It's one book back. First, second, third John, Jude, Revelation. And we're going to continue our instruction on what we've entitled Postcards from God. Postcards from God. We were thinking as we got started here just several weeks ago, now five weeks ago, that it would be good in the summertime if we just spent some time just working through books of the Bible. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, some of these, these books are quite lengthy and we would be there, you know, quite a long time, which, which might be worthy of that pursuit. But then it just struck me, why not take some of these shorter letters, really postcards, and just work through these postcards and share a little bit. And anyway, I've, I've enjoyed just one more time reading through God's Word and getting things in context, seeing it all come to pass, and uh, it's helped me a lot. Hopefully it's helped some of you as well. And we finally got to the book of Jude, and there's at least going to be three messages. So I know I'm going to be in this series this week and at least two more weeks after this because I see at least three themes that can come out of the book of Jude, and so, uh, so I want to touch on those. And uh, just as we get started, those of you that don't know anything about this postcard from Jude, let me just tell you just a couple interesting quick facts about it. You know, Jude, in all likelihood, was the half-brother of Jesus himself. So, so Jesus, you know, of course, his, his dad is his heavenly father, uh, through the spoken word, inseminated Mary, and, and he was birthed. He had divine DNA in him, Jesus. But uh, Mary and Joseph went on to have other children, and out of that came, came several uh, other children, several other brothers. I guess we could call them literally half-brothers of Jesus. One was James. James eventually became the senior pastor at the Church of Jerusalem. You find that in Acts chapter 15. But James's brother and Jesus' half-brother was named Jude. And so, so this letter is being written to the half-brother of Jesus. He's in, now in leadership in, in an area where he's overseeing churches. And uh, there are some things that Jude wants to communicate uh, to the churches and the people uh, that are under uh, his uh, bishopric or his authority. Now, uh, despite the church, you realize we're only in the first several decades of New Testament church life. And since the church was relatively young, it's interesting that even in those early years, they had some significant issues that were beginning to creep into the life of the church. And the thing that amazed me so much when you think about it is that while they only had a few decades under their belt with regards to living out their Christianity and what we would call church life, it's interesting to me that some of the very issues that crept into that early, early church are the very same issues that circularly keep creeping in to the church of the, of the centuries as we go on through church history. And the things that we're even going to talk about this morning are still creeping in to the church here in the 21st century. So I want to read to you just the opening verses. I'm only going to read to verse 4, although we may just kind of spill over and talk about some of these others. But we'll just get started with four verses. And I've entitled our lesson this morning, The Need to Contend. The Need to Contend. Let's read Jude, beginning first verse. A bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. How many of you know that 
If you've given your heart to Jesus, if you become born again, if you're a Christ follower, then there in verse 1, this letter's for you. Can you see that? If you do, say amen. Okay. You are called, sanctified, and preserved. Verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly. You may want to underline that in your Bible. To contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there. Uh, he will illustrate that to some extent in these later verses, but we're going to stop there. And again, I want to teach for just a moment or two on what I entitled the need to contend, the need to contend. Now, the issues of this postcard from Jude are really so intertwined that it will be important to hear what I tell you this morning because literally what I share with you this morning will be intertwined with everything we will talk about in the next two weeks. And, and, and if you can't, can't kind of wrap your, your, your mind and wrap your spirit around what we're teaching here, then the next couple of weeks might be a little bit more difficult to pull together because all that Jude writes, they're all intertwined with each other. And, and I'm just trying to pull apart several of the twines so we can begin to see what's going on here. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but sin always has a spiraling effect. I'll say that again. Sin has a spiraling effect. It never stays in just one area of a person's life. In the upstate, in particular, of South Carolina, if you'll drive along the interstate or the back highways, there's this vine or there's this plant that grows. I guess it's the proper name, but it's called kudzu. Has anybody heard of kudzu? I don't know if you know the history of kudzu or not, but the history of kudzu apparently, at least as it was told to me, if this is wrong, then I was told wrong. But the history of kudzu is that when cattle came to the United States and other particular animals, maybe, maybe goats and sheep and other type of farm animals, and they were looking for a cheap feed, they thought that perhaps they could bring this plant over, and as I understand it, it may have come from Japan or Asia, or some area in there. They brought this plant that was not indigenous to America, but they brought it over from there, and they planted it in hopes of using it as cheap feed for animals, kudzu. And if you've ever seen... Uh, kudzu, it, it, it's, it is like a vine, and, and you can plant just a little square patch. I'm talking just a little square patch like this of kudzu, and give it a year or so, and it'll cover your house. I, I mean, I've never seen anything grow like kudzu grow. I mean, it covers every, it, it really, it just starts running. And if you'll go and drive, and I've got, I've got folks from the upstate here, they'll tell you the truth. It'll just grow, and it'll go up the, 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 the electric poles and the foam poles, and it will go over the wires, and the, it'll drape over that. No joke, if you don't keep it cut away, it would cover your house. It would cover everything known to man. And you can drive along the side of the road. You can just see kudzu. And I'm told that it's hard to kill. 
and you just can't kill it. I mean, it almost has to be burned away in order to get rid of it, but it's almost like it just keeps coming back, you know? It's like like the Terminator. It keeps coming back and back and back. Kudzu. And I started thinking about kudzu and how how its intention originally was was obviously to do something good or to really to take a shortcut to feed animals, and now it's become a plague. If you can keep kudzu in your mind, then you can begin to understand the nature of sin in a person's life. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to sin and I'm going to go kill myself or I'm going to destroy myself. Nobody ever thinks of sin in those terms. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. Sin's always fun. Don't misunderstand me. You say, Pastor, you don't understand the world. I understand. It's fun. I get it. There's pleasure in sin, the Scripture says. There's fun in sin for a season. For a season. And then what happens is this spiraling effect begins to take place. And so, so sin never stays just in one place in your life. You may think that all I'm going to allow it is in just this one little area of my life. I can handle it. I can control it. I, 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 you know, it, it's fun. It's all of these things. And then all of a sudden, like kudzu, your whole life is suddenly taken and wrapped, and you're covered in it. Now, the reason I share that with you is because the issue I want to use as a springboard today comes out of that concept. And Jude starts by telling us that we're to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, here's the good news. I believe that Jesus can burn away the kudzu. I believe Jesus can cut it all away. I believe he can root it all out. I believe he can do those things. But sin left unaddressed is eventually going to destroy your life. And so Jude starts to deal with this issue, and I haven't got to the issue yet, but he begins to deal with something where he says, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to contend for this. You're going to have to deal with this. In fact, literally, uh, it means to contend for a thing like a combatant, to contend earnestly. When you read that, you need to begin to think of a boxer. You know, for some of you, some of, a, some of the younger generations, they know that UFC fighting or that MM, you know, mixed martial arts fighting you know, which now has rules, so it's not like, you know, this, this you know, alley brawl that's just brought in inside, so it does have a little rules to it now. But you got to imagine something like that, and, and, and these two combatants are going after each other, and, and then the bell rings, and they have to go back to their corners, and there's a trainer that's there, or a coach of some form, that's usually wiping them down, toweling them off, uh, giving them insight or instruction And I can assure you that there have been occasions where the trainer has looked at this combatant and he said, hey, you got to start throwing a punch. You got to start getting in this fight. You got to give it all you got. You've only got a couple rounds left. You got to leave it all on the mat. You got to contend and fight for this thing like you've never fought before. And that's literally what Jude is saying here. He is looking at his... Uh, churches that he gives oversight to, and he says, come on, there are some things you're going to have to contend with. You're going to have to get in the fight. You're going to have to throw some punches. You've only got a few rounds left. There's not much time left. You're going to have to get with it, and you're going to have to leave it all on the mat in this fight. And the question then becomes, well, who are they 
being told to do this to? Well, it says here in verse 4. We'll get there. It says that there have been those, apparently teachers. Maybe there have been ordinary believers as well. He, he doesn't enumerate. He just says certain men have come into the church and they have corrupted, he says here, the grace of God. They've corrupted the grace of God and they turned it into something that it was never intended to be. Now, before we talk about the corruption and all that it entailed, it might be good for us just for a moment because some of you may be new to Bible study and maybe you have other backgrounds that taught you other things and let's just kind of clear up what grace is all about. If, 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 if we don't understand what grace really is, we really won't understand what's corrupting it. So let's talk just a little bit about what is, is grace and what are we contending for here? Because if we're in a battle, then, then he says there are those that have corrupted grace. Therefore, what we're contending for is the real understanding of grace to be maintained within the life of the church and life of the body. So what is grace? Well, oftentimes people get grace and mercy confused. I believe I put this on the screen. Write this down. It's just a simple, it, it's not a full definition. It's just some simple little things that oftentimes help us. Mercy. What, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. That's mercy. Not receiving what you deserve. Let's say you're going down the road and you know you're going too fast uh, for that road, you're over the speed limit, and you see the lights flashing behind you, and you're pulled over. And you're going, oh, no. I can't afford what the fine's going to be. I've got too many points on my license already. Oh, this is just going to cause, oh, it's just going to wreak havoc and hardship. And, and you're already going through all of these things. And you, and you know, you even know that you violated what the speed limit was. The police officer comes up. Uh, whatever law enforcement agency it is, he gets your license, he gets your insurance card, he gets everything, you know, for some of you, your concealed weapons permit, he gets everything that he needs to get from you. He goes back to his car, he comes back, and he hands it to you, and he says, I tell you, I'm just going to give you a warning today. And there's something inside of you that just goes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You say, why are you spending so much time on it? You just received mercy. You deserved a ticket. You didn't get a ticket, but you got mercy. All right? That's mercy. Now, what is grace? Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. Grace is receiving what you do not reserve. Now, let's just say you're just... You know, you have a day by yourself, and you're just enjoying your day, and um, you're going to several places, and you're just kind of carefree, and all of a sudden you walk into a store that you were just going to look around and shop around, maybe. You, you didn't have anything on your agenda. You just walk in, and suddenly, as you go through the doors, all the lights go off again. There's sirens and lights that are going off, but this time it has nothing to do with police officers. You are the, maybe the 1,000th customer of this local store. And all of a sudden, they give you all of these, these gifts and they give you, they give you a, 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 a prepaid visa card to shop to your delight. And they, they give you all of these things. I mean, you just, you just walked in and received all of this. You didn't deserve it. You weren't counting people off to make sure you were the 1,000th one. You just, you, it was an unexpected, unmerited 
blessing that came into your life. You didn't have to work for it. You didn't punch a clock for it. You didn't put any energy into it. You just got it from somebody's unmerited favor. Now, one is mercy, one is grace. Those are the simple definitions that most of us have grown up with. But the definition for grace, as good news as that is, is only partial. There's a fullness to understanding what grace is. The Greek word literally is charis. Charis. That doesn't mean anything to you, but I can tell you this, that charis is also the word that is used for gifts, like spiritual gifts. Uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, spiritual charis. I was going to use pneumaticos. You don't give a rip about that. Charis. So, so if you have a spiritual gift, let's say you, you're working with the word of knowledge. You're, you, you, you've got gifts of healing. You've got, you've, these are supernatural gifts, supernatural charis. You're following me? Now, if you can keep that in mind, that charis carries with it not just unmerited favor because you don't deserve any of it, but charis carries with it empowerment. Empowerment to do something you normally could not do. Because in the natural, in the natural, you can't do works of healing. In the natural, you don't have discernment. In the natural, you can't get a word of wisdom. No, that's supernatural charis coming into your life. So grace is not just unmerited favor, but it's also empowerment. Now, James chapter 4, uh, put James 4 up. Uh, Jerry, will you please listen to this? Now, listen to what James writes. This is what's important right here. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. It's kind of like, you know, are, are, are they reading the letter? I guess they are. So, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world, listen, makes himself what? Ooh, my, my, my. We just ling Let's linger there for just a minute. So if I'm a friend with the world, I'm alienating myself from where? Right. All right, just keep that in mind. Go to verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Stop there. What it says, what that means is, is that the Holy Spirit is, is, is covetous of, of your life. He, he wants you. He's jealous for you. He wants the best for you. He wants God's best for you. And he's jealous about that because how many of you know God is really kind of smart? How many of you would agree with me God's smart? Wouldn't you have to think? I think to get the job of God, you'd have to be smart. So if God's so smart that he actually knows what would be best for you, in fact, he knows better than you know what's best for you. I know you think you know what's best for you, but you're not God, are you? So that means there's a caveat in there that you might be dumb. But not in God, because he's smart. Verse 6. But it says, listen to this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Go to the next one. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what James is saying here is this, is, is that as we... As we align ourselves with God, yes, he gave us grace in order to receive us and redeem us, but he can, give, he can give more grace in order that you can resist the devil. 
Now that's going to be revelation in our current church era. Because right now, the devil makes us do a lot, it seems like. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Well, you know, it's just the devil. The devil this, the devil that. No, he gives more grace that you can resist the devil. Now, here's an even better one. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. We're going to go through a lot of scripture because we're in church, and that's a good thing, isn't it, to go through a little scripture. All right. I mean, I know I, know I should have film clips today. I don't have any film clips, but, but we'll just try the Bible out and see if that works. It says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, Paul's getting all this downloading from God. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. I actually believe it was a demonic entity. It says a messenger of Satan, which is messenger is actually angelos, which is an angel of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Next verse. Concerning this thing, I asked, the Lord, uh, Paul said, with the Lord, three times that it might depart from me. Now listen. And he said to me what? My my what is for you. Now, what does that mean? It means this. For he says, my strength is made perfect where? In weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Next verse. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, what? Then I am He's saying literally this. He's saying even when Satan comes against him, that the grace of God is released to him in such a way that even when he's feeling depleted or he's feeling weak, that the grace of God can come, listen, not to excuse what he's about ready to enter into, but to empower him so that he can prevail over what's fixing to come his way. All right? We're teaching grace here. Now listen to me, because in our current era, most people look at grace as an excuse. It's, it's, my, it's my excuse. I'm under grace. I'm just... I, I, know, I, I know every now and then I sleep around. I'm just resting in the grace of God. <laughs> no, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're resting in some bedrooms that you ought not be in, and you need, you need to access the grace of God. Grace has become an excuse to, 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 to somehow deceive us into thinking that, oh, yeah, you know, we all sin. We all come short of the glory of God. Therefore, you know, I'm, just, I'm under grace. It really doesn't matter what I do. God loves me. La-di-da. Grace doesn't excuse us. It empowers us. The grace of God, even when I am weak, causes me to be strong. There is no temptation given unto men by which God does not give a way of escape. How? The grace of God causes me to see it. Causes me to move toward it. That's, that's grace. Now, let's, now, this naturally leads to salvation because what Jude's going to talk about here is he's going to talk about those who are teaching things that are not accurate and they're leading people to a conclusion about their eternal state that is not accurate. All dogs don't go to heaven. I want to remind you what Jesus said. He said that the broad is the way that leads to destruction. He says many there be that go that way. But he says narrow is the way that leads to life eternal. And few there be that find it. That was Jesus. So, so we've got to break out of this whole 
This whole mentality that somehow says to us that, that just because someone every now and then says the word Jesus or when they're in a tight spot, they want to pray or somehow or another that they, they intellectually assent to the concepts of Scripture that they're okay, that is not true. It's just not true. So let's just review this for a second because I get, I get every now and then I get an email on this. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says this. Now listen. This is the Bible, okay? I'll just say it again. I understand it's not some movie clip. It's not nearly as entertaining. But, you, but you, don't you need to know what's going to get you into eternity right with God? I would hope so. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. That's right. I can't do it myself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, I'm going to go over Christianity 101 right now. You cannot earn your salvation. You do not merit it. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up before you come to God. You can come just as you are. There is nothing in you that probably wants God on occasion. But God, because of grace, it reaches out to us. And because of that grace, even begins to turn our heart so we can begin to move towards him. And there's nothing we can do. We've got nothing to offer. You understand, God should have blowed the whole thing up and started over again with Adam's sin. He did not do that. The grace of God said, we're going to work with this frail, uh, 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 imperfect bunch. And so the grace of God was extended. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You're not that great. You may think you're all that in a bag of chips. You ain't. Nothing. You have nothing before God. And when we come to God and say, Lord, I want you, it is by grace we are saved. It's by grace that you even chose to receive. You didn't even have enough sense to know that you needed God. A lot of people live that way. They're just clueless. And one day they get a clue. They think they get a clue because of the issues of their life. No, you got a clue because the grace of God started moving towards you. Now the problem really with that verse is not grace. We get that. The problem is with works. It is true that you cannot earn or work to be saved. But it's equally true that when grace is at work in a believer, there is a desire to demonstrate obedience. That's why James said these words, post it, James 2. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Stop right there for just a second. What he's saying is this. You can say you believe in Jesus. Welcome, welcome to the demon club. Boy, I've, I've met people all my life that said they love Jesus, and they're full of demons. So it doesn't matter. You can say, it doesn't matter what you say. It's a matter of what has worked, the work God has wrought in you. It's not just saying it. It's the grace of God working in you. Go on. It says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works, I'm going to talk about this, is dead. Next verse. Do we have that next one? No, that's where I stopped. Faith without works, okay, is dead. Sorry about that, Jerry. So obedience is not 
works righteousness. And this is, I'm going to say this, obedience is not works righteousness. Many people think that if they're being obedient, that somehow it's a work and, and God doesn't, doesn't want works. That's not true. God always wants obedience. The grace of God empowers you to be obedient. The grace of God, which has come into your life, which transforms you by the spirit of grace, causes you to desire and want obedience. Now, does that mean we function perfectly? Of course not. Do, do, are we errorless? Of course not. Scripture is full of examples, is it not? Of believers who stumble and fall. The scripture is full of those who even become ensnared by sin. But I want you to listen to me very, very carefully because this is where we get into the era of what Jude was writing to in the era of our day. There is a difference between periodic stumbling due to immaturity or gullibility, and, 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 and it's different than you calendaring your stumble two weeks from now. I understand people are ensnared. People... People aren't paying attention. They, they, they get ensnared. I, I, I mean, there's a compassion. We're human beings, and I think there's a compassion in the heart of God. But if you've scheduled two weeks from today to meet up with somebody in Joe's hotel, and you're going to have a rendezvous with them, don't you look and say that you're okay with God. You are not okay with God. Because the grace that transformed you, that's in your heart, the Holy Ghost would convict the fire out of you. Yes, he would. That's why the Bible refers, when we get into this era, as those who practice. Everyone say practice. See, it's not just, you see, this is where this whole security thing gets all messed up. You know, I grew up in eternal insecurity. I, I mean, I grew up in a church that you could lose it between the morning and evening service. I mean, you know, you, you know if you just got a little cross with your wife or your kids, you, you know, your salvation was suspect. I mean, I, mean, it was, it was, it, I called it eternal insecurity. I mean, you were losing it all the time. And I'll be the first one to stand up here and say that was silliness. It was wrong. But now let's go to the other end of the spectrum where the pendulum swings. And for those that somehow think they can practice their sin, and as they practice it over and calendar it and plan it and do it, and they do it with impunity, and there's no conviction, and there's no tears, and there's no consternation over whether they've alienated God, do not come to me and tell me that the grace of God is at work in you because the grace of God would at least convict you, but it's there to empower you to prevail. I don't care, I don't, I don't care if you believe in security or not. I, it, it has, I don't care a twit about what your doctrine is. We got more people worried about maintaining a doctrine than being right with God. Real believers are empowered by the grace of God. You're empowered out of those activities. If you're practicing a sinful habit with impunity, the Bible simply does not teach that is okay. But we have developed this sort of security doctrine that says, you know, you made a walk, you shook the pastor's hand, you signed a card, prayed a prayer, there wasn't a tear, you weren't really sure what you were signing up for. You just saw everybody else go up there and thought that might have been a good thing. You tried everything else in life, so why not try Jesus? So you, you're trying them out. You're giving, you know, sort of a 90-day approval for a test drive with Jesus in your life. And suddenly we have developed a doctrine that says that somehow, some way, that because you did this back when you were like four, five, six years old, that somehow when you're sinning with impunity, that you're okay. I just want to announce to the world, wrong, wrong, wrong. And it's not wrong because I think it's wrong. It's wrong because that says it's wrong. 
There's a security. Don't misunderstand me. I believe you can be secure. But my security is not in what I do. My security is, is, is in his grace that not only covers me to save me, but it empowers me to prevail. Does that mean I'm perfect? No, it does not. But it does mean this, that even in those imperfect moments, what it means was I did not, I did not prevail upon his grace. So what's the problem here? See, I hadn't even got to our verse yet. Well, the problem is this grace has been twisted. It's been twisted in the church. There were people who were teaching that grace gave them an excuse, literally, to sin. So much so that Jude said they were practicing what was shameful or lewd. Now, that's a pretty powerful word, isn't it? In other words, they said they were under grace, but they were practicing lewdness. Now, this group apparently had been around for a while because Paul writes to this group as well in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Literally, they were saying this. They were saying, well, you know, I need the grace of God because I'm a sinful being. And since, since uh, I need all the grace I can get, then certainly sinning a lot would cause a lot of grace to come, wouldn't it? So I'll just, I'll just sin like crazy, and God will be sending more and more grace. So literally, it's a good thing to sin. Isn't that crazy? Are, are, are you in tune with God enough to see how crazy that sounds? Well, he says, it, he says certainly not. The original language says, may genote. He said, may it never be. How could you think that way? You are, out, you are out of your mind. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Jude will illustrate this in all sorts of ways later. We'll get to that next week. He's going to talk about angels who uh, came down, did not keep their first estate. And uh, he will talk later about how they came down and, and they began to have a sexual relationship with women on earth. In other words, people were having sex with one another that ought not be having sex with one another. I hope that makes sense to you that angels and folk ought not have sex together. Well, well you, I, the reason I ask that is because we haven't figured out that men ought not have sex with men and women ought not have sex with women. Now, I, you don't even have to read the Bible. All you have to do is read your biology book. I mean, there aren't, I understand on our bodies, there aren't like little signs that say entrance and exit. But I think, I think most people get that after a while. That's why God said all of nature speaks against it. He'll use Sodom and Gomorrah as examples of these perversions. And, and, and it has to do with whether it's just simple fornication, and it can be heterosexual sin as well. It can be adultery. It can be, it can be homosexuality. The point being is that what was being taught was that you could do these things and that the grace of God excused you from all of this. And Jude was reminding them that nothing's further from the truth. Jesus, listen, Jesus did not die so you could keep on sinning. He died to free you from the power of sin. So that's the power of the cross. That's why I say there is no sin that is greater than that cross. 
That cross is greater and more powerful than any sin that ever existed in the earth. And when I come and I embrace the cross, I am embracing the very power of God that, that sets me free from the chains and the bondages and the mess-ups and the screw-ups and the hang-ups. I am set free from my past and the baggage and the bondage, and I am made clean, and God wipes my slate clean, and I'm a clean being, and then his grace empowers me not to be bound again. In that, that's why it's called good news. It's not good news to say, come get your forgiveness fixed and then go out and live defeated. That's not good news. I was in the same shape beforehand. I just got forgiven. I mean, it's nice to be forgiven. Don't misunderstand me. But the good news is I'm not just forgiven. I am set free. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That's what his grace will do. Now, I'm just... I'm working through, you know, I know in the Bible they name names on occasion, and I'm working through about whether I name names or not. I mean, so I'm not quite there yet. So I'll just allude to a couple of things just so we can make illustration of it. But there's been recently, I mean, we've all known in the last 4, 5, 10, 20 years, there have been notable ministers that for whatever reason were ensnared and they fell. Notable minister as of late. And I, I don't, you know, and if, and if this offends, then I'm sorry. I just, I got to use it because I'm going to protect some people. I may lose a couple, but it, but it doesn't matter to me anymore. If I can protect people, I'm going to protect them. A minister recently was accused of having sex with four boys. Stood up and said he's going to fight it, but ends up settling out of court. Church pays money to settle it out of court. Puts a gag order on everybody, including those boys. Now, can I just ask you something? How are those boys going to get right with a gag order? And they just, and they just go on with ministry. It's, that is corrupt. And then you have ministers that will stand up and they'll, they'll, they'll look at their people and they'll say, what are, you, what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing judging the man? What are you doing judging him? I mean... I mean, he stood with you when you fell. Why won't you stand with him when he falls? Well, here's the difference. The difference is if you want the responsibility of leadership with all of its perks and its benefits, then it's time you stood up to the plate and understood that your visibility entails some responsibility in your lifestyle too. Listen, you don't get people to carry your Bible and be your entourage and you be a big wheel and big shot, and everybody bows down to you because you're the big cheese, but the minute you fall, you're just like one of the sheep. It don't work that way, friend. It don't work that way. I'll be the one who says it. James 3 and 1 says, not let, do, do not let many aspire to be teachers, for with it comes a stricter judgment. Yes, it does. I have more responsibility on my life to live it right. Yes, I do. Why? Why, do, why should I have more responsibility? Because my sin ripples over many. You may just mess up your personal household. Now, I mess up my household, and I mess up a lot of other households. So, yeah, there is more responsibility in this thing. But here's the good news. It said in Ephesians for with regards to apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, it says that when Christ ascended, he gave grace for those gifts. There's a grace. 
So I understand there's a grace that I can avail myself to that can keep me on target, that can keep me strong, that no matter what's thrown at me, I have no excuse except to avail myself on the grace of God that will cause me to prevail. That's, see, that's what my personal expectation is. But there are teachers. I've heard this teaching that once you receive grace, you no longer need to repent. Now, if that's true, then I don't understand why Jesus told five of the seven churches in the book of the Revelation to repent. We've reached the point that these things must be contended for. Truth must be contended for. We have to begin to understand that grace causes us to prevail in victory. Now, I'm going to give you quickly, write these down quickly. How, how can we earnestly contend? How should we? I, I've got three things, and I'm, I'm going to leave it at this because we've got to pick it up next week again. <laughs> That'll bring them all back, won't it? Amen. Number one, my prayer has begun for a national apostolic voice to address the drift. We've got nobody anymore in America at large that can step in front of a television camera and just say, listen, I know what you're seeing. That ain't right. It's not the Bible. It isn't Scripture. I understand America is the great free enterprise system, and it works in religion too. You can, you can teach any harebrained scheme you want, and it might float in America because we have certain liberties that cause us to do that. But I still believe we need a national voice, and I'm praying for one. Now, nobody wants to be perceived as a stone thrower. Nobody wants to look merciless. Nobody wants to look judgmental. I certainly don't. But we live in an era where we tolerate anything. We need somebody. We need even a group of leaders out of a good spirit. I'm not talking about a bad spirit. I'm talking about meekness and gentleness who can just look at the world and say, that's, that's not us. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus was about. When Jesus looked at the woman who was thrown in front of him who had committed adultery and they were ready to stone her, yes, he showed her mercy. And when he confronted the accusers, they, they, they went their way. And he says, woman, where are our accusers? And then he looks, and then what does he say? He says, go and sin no more. That's the whole scoop. And there may never be an ability to correct some people, but there should at least be the ability to speak about it. And we should support voices of righteousness. Number two. I know that I've got people that listen to this on iTunes, so this is for some of you on iTunes. American pastors need to teach the whole truth about victory. Now listen to me, especially in our circles. By and large, we will preach victory and we will preach success over certain areas. Things like poverty, because we believe in prosperity. Over our status in life, because we all want to be promoted and elevated. We preach victory over sickness because there's healing. But why won't we preach victory over sin? We preach victory in every area of life. You can prosper, you can be healed, you can be promoted, God wants to exalt you, and you'll hear people preaching victory in every area, but when it comes to sin, it's always, well, you know, we're all gonna stumble, bumble around. I'm done with it. I understand, ain't nobody perfect. There's always sins of omission that are being committed. I get it, I get it. I, I, I remember Romans 3.23. Don't come quoting it to me. I got it. But why won't we preach a little victory in these areas? 
Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6, 11. Listen to this. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next verse. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Next verse. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but you are under what? I know, you just read the Bible, it just messes you up. That's where victory is. You've been empowered. So, so I'm just telling you, I, I understand, and I'm, gonna, I, I'm just making light, but just go with me. You know, we had, we had a whole election cycle where the, where the great mantra chant was, yes, we can. Well, you know what? Yes, we can. Yes, we can prevail. Yes, we can overcome. Yes, we can be above the fray. Yes, we can. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. Come on, say it with me. Yes, we Say it. Yes, we can. One more time. Yes, we, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Say, no, I don't know if I can. Yes, you can. Say, well, what do I need to do? When was the last time you just got on your face before God and said, Lord, more grace? More grace. Don't, hey, don't read another book. Don't get another tape. Don't get another CD. Just get before God and get grace. I'm not saying that those aren't good things, but we got to get back to what causes us to prevail. And finally, number three, I just put it down here. You need to strategically challenge your Christian friends. Listen, most of my friends are pastors, and I'll just tell you, I challenge them all the time. And, and they have things they challenge me on, and that's why, that's why iron sharpens iron. But we live in such a passive era where we are timid to stand for truth because we fear someone's going to call us intolerant. Listen, I, I, I've got every sin imaginable on my block in the neighborhood in which I live. And you know what? I think I'm a pretty tolerant guy. It just goes on, and I live right there. But that doesn't mean when the opportunity now, strategically, when the opportunity comes, that we don't begin to challenge people with some new conceptions like, you don't have to do that. You can prevail. Now, again, don't get a bad spirit. I really, I don't, don't get out of here with a bad spirit or don't be, you know, some people think they get the, the spirit of boldness and that what they got was the spirit of obnoxious. So, so hopefully you can discern the difference. But we got to press the truths of the gospel into the culture. I had one of my Facebook friends who saw something that I had posted on my Facebook, and they, uh, they clipped and posted it on their site. And then they got hammered by all their friends on that thing. They, just, they were hammered by what was posted. And then they wrote me back a little note that says, Gee, Pastor Baird, whenever you post things, everybody affirms you. But when I posted what you said, everybody hammered me. And I said, don't be discouraged by that. It just means you pushed the right button. 
We got to start pushing a few buttons. And we may not change everything overnight, but you know, we can begin to start clearing up the confusion. And let me just say this, that if you're going to share it, then you must live it. There's nothing worse than hypocrisy. By, by hearing someone say something that they don't do themselves. But if we don't, if we don't do this, then I will assure you, we, we are already losing our influence as the church in our nation. We have, we have no authority anymore. Why? Because the world looks at us and says, I don't, I don't see what's so different. You, 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 you divorce at our rate. You fall at our rate. We see, you, we see you in bars like we are. You get just as drunk as we get. You run around like we do. You, sell, you tell the same dirty jokes. You do all you do. I mean, tell me again. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can be forgiven. Well, I'm not feeling all that guilty. But the moment they look at your life and find out that you're the only one in your group that is halfway functional, they'll probably say, what is there that causes your life to prosper? And you can look at them and say, Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection causes me to prevail over every circumstance in Jesus' name. And they'll, and they'll be snarky and go, you think you're perfect? No, I, when, but when I am weak, he is strong. I ask for more grace, and he helps me to resist the devil, and then he flees. Resist the devil. It doesn't say embrace the devil. It says resist the devil, and he will flee. Now, one of the most beneficial things, and I'm done. In fact, why don't you stand? I want you to, I want you to look at this right before I'm done here. Just everybody stand with me. I'm going to the last few verses in the book of Jude. It's one of the most beautiful benedictions. I've used it at weddings at times. I've used it on, in other circumstances. It's one of the most beautiful benedictions in all of the Bible is at the end of Jude. And it fits so well with what I'm sharing with today. As he goes through these issues that we'll get to in these next couple of weeks, he gets to the last few verses in Jude 24 and 25 and listen to what he says as he ends his postcard. He says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from. Now I'm going to stop there for just a minute. You know what that word able means? Can you flip over to that? Did I post that? Yeah, look at this. Able, that word literally means to have power and inherent strength. Think about that, to have power and inherent strength. Jerry, go back now to verse. Now to him who gives you power and inherent strength to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Next verse. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You say, I'm not able. God is able. Now unto him who is able to keep you you're right, you can't do anything. I can't do anything. We, all of us, we are in trouble if it's up to us. And just like you couldn't get yourself saved, you can't keep yourself saved, and you can't prevail without him. But he will cause you to be able. You know what, one of the great, whenever I'm confronted with the possibilities of sin, <laughs> he, always, he always gives me one word causes me to prevail no (laughs) 
No. 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 Amazing, isn't it? One word. <laughs>